on a mission to explore the far reaches of cinema. Three daring adventurers dive deep into the Criterion and beyond. These are the tales of their adventures. This is Cinenauts! Hey, this is Ian. I'm Boom. This is Catcher. And welcome to Cinenauts Exploring the Criterion in just a little bit. We're going to talk about Gus Van Zandt's My Own Private Idaho, starring River Phoenix and Keanu Reeves. But this episode, we have back-to-back guests here on Cinenauts, which is a first for us, which I'm very excited about. Last week, we had Sophie Shin, one of the co-hosts of I Hope This Find Me Well podcast. She talked about Seven Samurai. But this week, we have Con future star, current star, dare I say, uh, writer, director. Yeah, his short film just premiered at TIFF last year, Joseph Amenta. Joseph, welcome, Ooh. welcome, welcome. How was your week so far? The week has been interesting. I, I think it's uh, it's been an influx of work after a period of time where it's been quite, you know, steadily quiet. Uh, I did a, a presentation for a high school class uh, for screenwriting. Right. And I've just been looking for uh, for kids for my feature film, and it's been about a year and a half, so uh, the struggle continues. That's <laughs> well, uh, uh, we, Boom Catcher and I, were lucky enough to screen two of your short films, House and Flood, and I loved both of them. I mean, I, I was just saying, like, literally within two minutes of watching House, I texted the other two and was like, yo, they are a bomb-ass director. Like, this is awesome. Yeah. Uh, and it went through for both of them. So uh, before we talk about those boom catchers, you want to give quick thoughts on House and Flood? Uh, I think we've all, we're all fans of the two films. Uh, House especially, I just think for me, the cinematography of that is absolutely mm-hmm. stunning, uh, gorgeous. Um, mm-hmm. And the performances are hyper, not hyper natural, but they just feel so genuine. And you un- you understand the relationship between these two characters so quickly. Um, and it's such a, and the outfits are unbelievably yeah. <laughs> bomb. My goodness. Those jackets yes. are yeah. amazing. Definitely. <laughs> and, and flood, I think is just like, uh, such a sort of a different story, but s- deals with it, like intimacy in such a beautiful way, uh, in the different kinds of relationships. Um, and yeah, I just, I thought that was just like wonderful and had me, the ending scene had me asking all kinds of fun questions. So it was, yeah, it was a different experience entirely, <laughs> but it was cool. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I, I, I think I try above all else to unapologetically display the human condition. And my human mm. condition, my perspective is centered around a racialized queerness. And I think that what I aim to do is integrate the people and the voices and the stories that I experience in my life into the work. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad that you enjoyed the performances in house because those are two people who are not actors who I engaged with in the community and helped me develop the story. So it's, it seems to be a lot of my works are collaborative and they come from the community and they allow themselves to represent the stories themselves. Which uh, mm-hmm. which I'm glad you responded well to. Yeah, something else that got me like right away on House is that uh, on both of them, honestly, but like you're in House in particular because music is such a key part of the storyline. Like when uh, the main character puts in uh, puts in the headphones and then like I don't know, it, it's like the way you control the music yeah. throughout 
the whole thing is is incredible and like the cinematography paired with it all i mean it's awesome i, I was just like really really floored by it it, it was it was thank so you good. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a play on diegetic sound. It's it's the idea that I'm teaching the audience from that beginning moment that for throughout the film, the score that we will eventually mm-hmm. listen to is what the characters are hearing in their minds. It's not for mm-hmm. the audience to tell them what to feel. It's what the characters are listening to to get them through the moment. And we're privy to that experience. So that plug-in is essentially for the rest of the film, the plug-in of their experience audibly. I was going to say, like, aside from them being, like, absolutely technically flawless, and I'm not just saying that, um, they just really hit hard. <laughs> I'm, it's true. Like, I, I felt like they hit really hard, and they explore deep themes, but they also offer up this, like, wonderful celebration of the protagonists um, and their lives. Um, and the community that they're a part of. So I thought that was really great. I found them to be especially touching because it showed a piece of Toronto that I know and love. Like CanCon. CanCon. <laughs> yes, but I'm like one of those rare people who like was born and raised in Toronto. Joey, I don't know how long. Like, are you from Toronto or? Yeah, I mean, I grew up in a, a suburb of Toronto. I was, I was in Scarborough and Ajax, you know what I mean? So Nice. Yeah, no, you can totally tell. And um, I've been going to Tainomi show since before I was legal. Um, and then during the ball scene, I could like literally see my cousin in the background. Uh, yes. Um, so it like really. Um, All in the family. It really like. Exactly. No, it, it really felt like home and it just felt like a love letter. And I really enjoyed it. And it also made me miss Toronto because obviously with covid we can't kiki and that's just something i've (laughs) really been missing and it was just i think that the city i'm glad that you picked up on that i think that a lot of people ask me about where the these films are set specifically with house because the you know the assumption is chicago or new york or something along those lines but i think that the city has a lot to offer in terms of beauty and environment but we don't really see it in a nuanced and diverse way because the characters we're showcasing are usually from specific spaces so what happens when we flip that on its head and we find the nooks and the crannies and the grit and the dirt and we throw our characters in that space? Um, so I'm, I'm glad that you enjoyed that. And I'm glad that you've been yeah. going to drag shows for that long. Like, girl, like, that's important. That shit yeah. saves people. You know what I mean? Like, Tainomi is is a special is a special performer and she's been a pillar in this community. And I've, I've been honored to have her in the films. So House, which 2018, that was funded by the Canada Council for the Arts and was selected for... Uh, the Claremont uh, Ferrand International Festival, but then Flood premiered at TIFF, Toronto International Film Festival, which is, for those who don't know, like one of the biggest, if not the biggest film festivals in the world. Like they're, they're you know, Cannes has like, every film festival Cannes has a reputation. TIFF's reputation is that a bunch of Best Picture nominees are coming out of that festival, are premiering there. Uh, so it's pretty amazing that you got to premiere one of your short stories. So do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm going to keep it 100 with with all of you. It, it's it's it, TIFF is is a landmark for for a filmmaker who is based in Canada. I think that it's mm-hmm. an honor to play at such a, a a large festival. But the the true the true moment for me was playing Claremont with House because at mm. that point in my career, I was making films with like three other people 
I was I was speaking love to my community. I was making them with people who had not made films. And I was unapologetic about the representations. I wasn't trying to make people look good. I wasn't trying to make queerness look okay or like the characters were perfect. I was living on that bias line. And it actually didn't do perfect in Canada in terms of its festival run, but it popped off at Clermont. And that's the biggest mm. short film festival in the world. And when I saw European audiences react to that film, and I was sitting there with a, a truly diverse piece of work beside Oscar contenders, I was blown away. It changed my life. It changed my career. Yeah. Um, and mm-hmm. TIFF was, was the icing on top of the cake. It's, it's great to feel love from your hometown, you know? You already kind of teased you've been trying to, uh, you've been working on a feature length. Can you talk about your feature length at all? Like what that's going to be about? What's the timeline there? Well, the feature focuses on three adolescent queer friends of mixed racial origin who become enraptured in the nightlife scene over their summer break before mm-hmm. a loss of life pulls them back into the reality that they've chosen to abandon. So in many ways, it's a, a similar continuation of the work I've already created, but it's mm-hmm. visiting a fantasy world of what queer youth in a ra- racialized context looks like when you're unapologetic, when you have camaraderie, when you're not coming out of the closet, you're not being bullied in high school, you're just there and you move mm-hmm. through the city like you own the fucking joint. You know, what does that look like? What does it look like when we have these three rascals on the cusp Mm -hmm. of adulthood terrorizing Mm. the city until they realize (laughs) they're not invincible, you know? Yeah. 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 I mean, and that's like such a theme in current like film that like traditionally if a film features like POC main characters or diverse main characters, a lot of the time the plot line is like, their struggle and how hard their life mm-hmm. is and something like, and stuff like that. So I love that sort of like the new movement of films that are about diverse backgrounds yeah. are about positivity and like living happy exactly. lives and that yeah. sort of stuff. Like, so, uh, and it's a duality yeah. for me. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I think that's a, that's a great point. I think it's a duality. I think the first half of the film is really an exploration about an existence. I didn't get to experience growing up. I didn't have that camaraderie. I was, You know, I was quiet. I was holding things in. And what does that look like when we're experiencing that in an idealized way? When we're seeing kids that don't really exist in that world yet, they're not really living like this in our reality quite yet. But it's Mm -hmm. a love letter to what may be. But then I have to honor the reality of the Mm -hmm. obstacles that racialized queer folks and trans folks have Mm -hmm. to face. You can't ignore that shit because if you're only showcasing positive quote unquote representations, what you're actually doing is you're fooling the middle-aged rich white people who are sitting in the <laughs> festival audience who will buy tickets yeah. and they'll be like, Oh, I guess things are good now. I guess, I guess things are great. Like duality and kind of like looking at both sides and honoring both of those things really comes through in your work so far. Um, so I'm very excited to see what you do moving forward. Like good for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're awesome. I'm so stoked. And yeah. And I got to give a shout out to Miyoko Anderson, who's a pioneer in the ballroom community. She is a story editor for my feature film. She's Love never that. acted before. She's playing one of the leads in the film. And yes. her stories, her vision as a, a, a black trans sex worker has literally been a blessing. So get ready because we're about to fuck shit up. Yes. <laughs> this nice. energy is killer right now. As you should. Yes. As you should. So where can people, can people watch House or Flood? Um, 
are those available online? Like, can people rent it online or something like that? So, so Flood, I created at the Canadian Film Center. So film, film industry in Canada will know that the Canadian Film Center is like a lab for talent and they hold their work very closely. So that one's a little bit more challenging to, to find access to, but it is available on Alaskan Airlines. And I believe Frameline has done a broadcast showcase for it. Um, but House is on CBC and it's available on broadcast and online. So you just got to Google H-A-U-S. That's how we spell house up in here. And mm-hmm. and you'll pop it up with CBC. Yeah. So check it Everyone out. Everyone honestly should go and check it out. Like it's stunning. It's stunning. Like, please see it. It's just it'll be worth your time to do so for sure. And and keeping on the theme of Criterion also, if you're not familiar with ballroom culture, um, there's a really great, really famous documentary called Paris is Burning, which is about the ballroom scene. And it's like, for the, if anyone has watched Pose, um, the, a lot of the Pose characters and the storyline is based off of the true story of Paris is Burning, of the New York ballroom scene. And I'll be, uh, I'll be mentioning Paris is Burning quite a bit, so let's get ready for that. That's a good yeah, recommendation. Uh, yeah, <laughs> Paris is Burning, very, very good. I think it's on streaming even on the channel right now. So if you want intro to ballroom before you watch House or just watch House, go check that out. Uh, anyway, so let, let's move on. So this is our third month, third week of Black History Month. Uh, we had already discussed Ganja and Hess, and I talked about last Black Man in San Francisco last week. So, Catcher, it is your turn to chat about uh, your pick for this week's Black History Month feature. Okay, so for the, the Criterion Collection, to me, uh, is a collection of films that future generations need to explore and engage with. They give us doorways into cultures and human experiences beyond our own. The thing that's exciting for me is a chance for me to take a look at sort of my experience with black filmmakers and sort of engage with what have I seen, what haven't I seen, what's important, what's affected me. And then I decided, I looked at what I'd seen and I realized I don't know shit (laughs) about black filmmakers. I have a few films that I absolutely love and cherish with my heart, but I don't have enough viewing experience and I thought what what more of an opportunity to sort of like go back and look at the history of black film than to go all the way back uh, to the beginning to see sort of like what was what were the first beginning films that were being made and sort of what is the history of that and through some research I came across a man named Oscar Mishu and he was one of the most successful well the actually cited by Wikipedia and a book that Wikipedia cites, the most accomplished and successful black filmmaker of the first half of the 20th century. This man was a writer, a film producer, director. Uh, he wrote novels and uh, started his own film company uh, beginning of the 1900s. And in 1919, made his first film based off one of his own novels, uh, called the <laughs> called the Homesteader, um, and that was the first known all black uh, cast and crew of a major film, and it garnered huge amounts of praise. And then the following year, nineteen twenty, would release his second feature film, which is Within Our Gates. Uh, the film follows uh, an African American school teacher who travels north uh, and attempts to raise uh, money for this school back down South. And uh, it's often talked about alongside birth of a nation with regarding mm. 
sort of the time frame and ex- explaining sort of what history, what the times in America were like back at the beginning of. Wasn't it like made in direct response to Birth of a Nation or am I doing my wires crossed? Sometimes it's cited as sort of being the mirror and a response to it, but it technically from his perspective, he says no, which may that may not be true as well, but he says okay. he says it wasn't a direct response. It was more to do with the effect of like post World War One in the in the unease at that time. Um, but it definitely just gets into the lives of Black people all through America in the North and the South, and the different experiences that they have. Um, the plot is much more complicated than what I stated. There's flashbacks to the main character's life uh, on a farm early on. Um, it deals with lynching and murder, uh, not murder, sorry, lynching and mob violence and uh, racial struggles and all kinds, basically everything that was going on at that time, but from a black perspective. Mm-hmm. And for me, I think that what the Criterion does best is save and preserve and restore films that are vitally important that we are afraid we might lose. And I think this is such a great example of we talk constantly and for a good reason about inclusion in the film industry nowadays for what feels like half a century, constantly saying we need to have more voices, we need to see voices. And this film is a perfect example of showing what having multiple voices can do. You have Birth of a Nation and you have this film and Together, they can give a whole a larger picture of what the truth of that time was really like. And I think, too, what's really mm-hmm. important is we can't lose films like this. And this was a film that we thought was lost, that someone found in Spain <laughs> like a few, a few years ago. They've managed to do a bit of a restoring, but what the Criterion can really do is take it and clean it and really give it justice and give it a, a platform for people to experience. And, yeah. and I think it really shows... Like black and film his first it, picture was lost, completely lost, wasn't it? Completely lost. Which was I was yeah. gonna suggest that as the film because it's the first known film to be all cast and crewed yeah, by black, but it just but doesn't exist at all. Doesn't exist. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, I just think it's also interesting because I think a lot of people might say, "Oh yeah, every, everyone's trying to jump on the train, give being black." people opportunities to shoot films because it's PC and all that stuff. And I think what this proves is that black filmmakers have existed in the medium from the beginning. They are rooted in the beginning Mm. of this, uh, of this medium. And I think this is living proof that that is true. And then they have been here from the beginning Mm. telling their own stories. And I think that's super vitally important because we, you know, just like Joseph has said earlier, like, People need to be telling their own stories. We need to be giving people the opportunity to give their stories to people so that we understand who they are. That's what films are for. It's about telling stories. It's about giving people knowledge that they don't have themselves. And I just think this is a perfect mm-hmm. example for that. So Criterion, get off your asses. I'm sure <laughs> you're busy doing a lot of stuff. But this is a film that should be in the collection, I think, for sure. I've never seen it. How can we watch this? I've I have also not all seen right. it. I just feel like this is something I know like this is a film that we should all be watching. I just have no way of accessing it. Criterion mm-hmm. would let me watch it, but I just tried to do as much research as I could on nice. the film. I just um I, I believe it's I'm not a hundred percent sure, but I believe it's on the Criterion channel uh right now. I think so. Um and there I'll have to look into it and I'll post it on our page, but there's like an archival 
like I know streaming. they, they cleaned yeah. it up, but I so. wasn't sure that it was like readily available. So that's awesome. Nice. Well, uh, mm-hmm. we'll have to go watch that. What, what was the title again? Catch. Within our gates. Yeah, by Oscar Misha. Very cool. Yeah. I'll, I'll check. I'll try and check that out this week. Nice pick. And so we we actually got an email um, from Mel, our friend Mel. Uh, and I, we typically read emails at the end of the show, but she actually wanted to write about Black History Month, so I'm just going to read it now. So Mel says, yeah. Hi, Cinenauts. Uh, I love that you're highlighting Black cinema for Black History Month, and I wanted to submit a suggestion for your consideration. I recently watched a movie called The Fits, and I haven't oh. shut up about it or stopped thinking about it since. Oh, you like yes. it? <laughs> the Fits, yes. That film is exceptional. Yes, nice. So we got we got the Joey sign off right away. Uh, she says, uh, I don't want to say much too much about the movie because I think it's better to go in blind as possible, but it completely hypnotized me. We're getting a lot of prayer hands over here. Uh, the cast is a real kids dance team and it's set in a real community Senator in Ohio. The star royalty high tower is a revelation. Every part of the movie feels like a collaboration because it was, and it's transcendent and beautiful and haunting. I found myself just in tears at one point without knowing exactly why. Anyway, I could go on and on about it, but if you guys want a chance to watch it, I'd love to hear your thoughts. I love the podcast. Nice. You're all very smart. I don't want to be friends with you. Lots of love, Mel. Mel, thank you so much. I will I will note, not that it discredits the beauty of the film or the value of the film. It is a, a female white director. I believe this was her mm-hmm. first feature. And mm-hmm. the attention to detail, and this is this is how it's done correctly, the attention to detail, the learning and the listening that it's done in that filmmaking, the patience... Mm-hmm. And the respect is how you make films that are extensions of your experience or experiences that you do not have in the mm. correct way. And the last mm. moments of that film without ruining it yeah. are the most one of the most stunning moments I've ever seen in cinema. Woo. Adding to the wish. Nice. Nice. Okay. I'm going to add that to my list too. So the fits. Thank you, Mel. Um, so <laughs> yes. before we, we've been running along, so I'm going to pull an executive call and cut our, what did we watch this week? But I did want to chat really quickly to Boom about uh, guest spotting yeah. on the 70 millimeter yes. podcast. Uh, Boom, do you want to chat about yes. that really quickly? Yeah, absolutely. So they were doing Faves Month on their pod and they did a vote and people for Valentine's Day and people picked Romeo and Juliet and they discovered that Romeo and Juliet or Romeo plus Juliet, Baz Luhrmann, was in my top four on Letterboxd. So they invited me on to the show to talk about it. And it was awesome. I had a blast. I don't know if I spoke in full sentences. I think (laughs) I was just laughing the whole time because those guys are absolutely (laughs) hilarious. Um, But no, it was a lot of fun. And we've done like, on this show, we've done like Ian and Catcher's like, some of their all-time faves but we've yet to do one of mine you know there's movies that I really love that we've highlighted like I would definitely say like Rafiki is a new fave and Mm -hmm. I really enjoyed doing that but Mm -hmm. Romeo and Juliet is like one of my favorites of all time uh so it was nice to just have a platform to just gush and and talk about it and is that the 1996 version is that the one you're talking about yeah with Leo? Yeah, the 1996 Baz Luhrmann with Leo. I was going to mention that. You- <laughs> nice. Yeah, please hey, well, do. In the Idaho discussion. Oh, yeah, 100%. Okay, well, I guess we'll get to it later, but yes. Yeah, it is a nice tie into my 
uh, own private Idaho. I also watched 10 things I hate about you this week. So I feel like I've been doing like lots a of, lot of Shakespeare lots of modern adaptations. Shakespeare. <laughs> nice. Yeah. <laughs> well, that was seven. Uh, again, listen to boom on 70 millimeter. Yes. They're our friends, slim, uh, mm-hmm. proto and Danny on this week's episode. They have a cool Patreon. They have a fun discord. <laughs> Go check them out. I'm sure we'll get one of those yeah. guys on here for another episode at some point. Now let's get to uh, Joey's pick of my own private Idaho. Um, so every week before we start recording, we always say we need to do better about saying the plot of the movies. And every week I forget, but this week I will not forget. So uh, especially since my own private Idaho, maybe not as many people have seen this one as our uh, other episodes. So very high level. Uh, it's written and directed by Gus Van Zandt. And the plot is two best friends uh, who are River Phoenix and Keanu Reeves. Uh, they are male prostitutes in Seattle basically about their relationship as they go on a self-discovery journey to find themselves and what, uh, and family and all that sort of stuff over the course of a couple months. Um, they go from uh, Seattle to Portland to Idaho to Italy and back. And it's just about their journey as friends and, you know, sort of like where their lives take them without going more into that. Joey, I believe you are going to give us the proper intro. Okay, so let's jump into the time machine. (laughs) To 19, I give a run, I'm like, no. Into 1991, which is the birth year of yours truly, the Grand Dame Diva, but also (laughs) the release of uh, Gus Van Sant's My Own Private Idaho. I think the uh, most important cultural impact that I can think of as, as a linkage to queerness is a 10-year, essentially, anniversary of the beginning of the AIDS epidemic. Mm. And that's when we saw a shift of uh, Black folks and queer folks being villainized or distanced or neglected into being truly feared uh, in a sexual mm. way, where their sexual freedoms, their sexual identities, their sexual intimacies were a danger to society. Um, And this is at the beginning of the 90s with uh, George H.W. Bush, uh, another Republican in office. And we see a lot of shifting happening where open prejudice, open no's to discussions about queerness and queer health are happening. And we also see the rise of really strong responses from queer communities about reclaiming their space and reclaiming their identity. It goes without saying that the year prior, Jenny Livingston's Paris is Burning, thank you for mentioning that Mm -hmm. earlier, had been released. And I will be mentioning that a few times because it is the on the ground gritty reality of an experience that I think Gus Van Sant is is really trying to experience in this Mm -hmm. film. We get to see in Paris is Burning a unapologetic representation of racialized queerness in Harlem, New York, which engages in sex work and uh, theft and a low socioeconomic class. But above all else, there is a celebration mm-hmm. for that culture. And Gus Van Sant is, is right on the, the tail of, of that film mm-hmm. by showcasing um, a little bit more of a poetic, abstract version of a similar story with two very beautiful young stars. This is in pulp culture, the beginning of an infatuation with young androgynous Greco-style boys. Mm. We see them taking center in terms of who we want to see as leading 
members of our casts. Mm -hmm. And we also tie that into the representation of pop culture and cinema and fan base. So Keanu Reeves, Leonardo DiCaprio, River Phoenix, how can we use really struggling stories, really problematic themes, really um, taboo subjects, and how can we tie them in to mainstream audiences or auteur audiences to make them palatable? A, we add beautiful, beautiful, famous, androgynous boys. And B, we add elements of Shakespeare. We have Elizabethan themes on the rise in the 90s, and you can see it in elements like Romeo plus Juliet, Elizabeth, Shakespeare in Love, all of these things that continue to develop and grow throughout the 90s. And it's a way of connecting content that is relevant at that time to an ice cream cake version of a buffer for audiences through Shakespeare and language, because that gives it the golden stamp of approval. And that's where we're sitting when we enter Gus Van Sant's world after years and years of development for this feature film that didn't seem to get off the ground until it did. The very end, when he had those two beautiful boys sign that paper. I didn't mean to be honest with you, if I'm going to keep it 150, like I have very odd opinions about this film, so I'm not going to be blowing smoke up its ass. I'm, I'm ready for that, yeah. Joey referred to you know all the Shakespearean themes and the Shakespearean themes of this it's are very clear not only in subject matter but in dialogue. Mm. Um, it it's like half Shakespearean, half not. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm curious as to what everyone's first reaction was to that. I I liked it. I I was actually quite a fan of it. Um, but I know Boom. <laughs> texted us it was like i was like a little unprepared for this but yeah okay i'm getting two no's all right let's start with boom and then we'll go to joey wait go go off so i would say like i appreciate how ambitious this was and i like that we are trying something new but it switches between like extremely naturalistic dialogue to like iambic pentameter to like soliloquy you know, without skipping a beat. And, you know, it's just all these different kinds of dialogue. It's it's a cool choice, I think, but it kind of becomes a hindrance to me because it doesn't guide the audience through it, really. And it just kind of like, for mm. me at least, it really interrupted my brain flow and my ability to connect with the film because, I mean, mm. not specifically the language, but I... I I didn't love it. I did not love it. I would echo a lot of those sentiments. I think that, and this is me saying this as politely as possible. I think (laughs) that oftentimes we mistake director's masturbation on camera to uh, finding nuance. Mm -hmm. And that can sometimes really translate. But in this situation, I found that with Gus Van Sant's style of already being a very patient slow director Mm -hmm. who likes to take time and reflect in his pacing, the environments he's shooting in, which is very rural a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. Those rural settings and that slow pace with this abstract language and allusions to Shakespeare, I feel like it really alienated the audience and ended up really 
taking up more time than it was worth. Instead of spending time mm-hmm. with the characters that I was mm-hmm. trying to develop relationships with, I feel like whenever we were there, we'd be pulled out for a sonnet mm-hmm. or a moment of Shakespeare that felt gratuitous and not intrinsic to the progression of the story. Catch, mm-hmm. what about you? Yeah, I mean, just like, just in general, like the movie started and at first I was like really not taken aback by the Shakespeare specifically, but just really trying to understand like, what is the story that we're going with right now? Like, what are we trying, what are we trying to learn? What's the, who, what's the main character? What are the, what are his struggles? Like what's going on? Like, what are we trying to learn about them? And then I think it was about like, I don't know, maybe 45 minutes, an hour in. I was like, oh, I started feeling the. Gus Van Zantness of it and like I Gus Van Zant is a huge thing for me like when I was really young starting to get into film like his death series uh Elephant Jerry Mm. and Last Days were like super influential for me um so once I remembered oh yeah this is a Gus Van Zant movie I start for some reason once that clicked I started like working with the pacing like you said Joey like he is someone who likes to take his time he likes to revel in the moment. He likes to try and like get the vibe of what the characters are feeling at in that space. But I think you do bounce around so often and and the 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 movie that you're in is constantly changing. You never get a chance to breathe and, and and I had I was trying to figure out what about the movie I was disconnecting with, but I think Joey had it right, which is you never never settle into who these characters are, like especially uh River Phoenix's character is it mm-hmm. Michael? Mike, right? Mike. Um, mm-hmm. He literally falls asleep in the middle of a scene. So it's like you never, and then <laughs> yeah. you're off to the next chapter. And it's like, I, I'm not, I will get into his performance. I'm not a particularly huge fan of it, though I think a lot of people are. I mm-hmm. have mixed feelings on it. Um, I think even though a lot of the dialogue for Keanu Reeves is Shakespearean, this might be like one of his best performances that I've ever seen. He feels up until maybe the end, the final sequence. I was shocked by mm-hmm. how much I was like interested in what he had to say and what he was doing. I, I do want to shout out just real quick. And we'll obviously come back to this. Just Keanu's quick run of films in the late eighties, early nineties. So this is all basically within a couple of years, Bill and Ted's excellent adventure, parenthood, uh, point break, my Private Idaho, Bram Stoker's Dracula, Much Ado About Nothing, and then Speed. So talk about talk about like an insane run of movies and, <laughs> and range there. Yeah. Like what what a I mean, it, it's pretty crazy that he dominated so many movies like that, like with such a spread of of, of roles. Um that, that that stuck out to me is like this is right in the middle of like that kind of like insane run of his Period, yeah. and then he yeah. kind of fell off after speed until I mean I know we have Johnny mnemonic weirdos who love that movie but he fell off until the matrix in 1999 but yeah. I will also add to that I mean I think I think that that Mike said exactly what I was thinking in terms of when you were reading that plot and when you were giving us that <laughs> plot yeah I was like what yeah, right is that what this film is right. about I was like that film sounds fabulous. <laughs> I'd watch that film. And and I think it's because the the idea, the core, the imagery, the idea of the relationship, the hints to the mm-hmm. relationship, all mm. of them are there. And I'm as a director and a writer, 
I sometimes get lost in my style and in my mind. In-house, we do a lot of abstract imagery. We do a lot of montage. We do a lot of momentum. And I have to remind myself, at the end of the day, who are the voices we have on screen? Are we connected Mm -hmm. to them? Do we understand what they want? Do we want it for them? And there were hints of that. And I think we picked up on that, all of us. But it was lost in all of the fluff for me. I 100% agree because I think that on paper... This this movie, Catcher, this is a Love Island reference for you, is my type on paper, right? It's like a like queer <laughs> queer focused, um self-discovery, super stylistic, all of those things that I love dearly. Um, but I think that what happens is all of these things get brought out into the light um and just kind of left there. And it's kind of lacking nuance and it just, and I could imagine watching this in 1991 and as who I am now and maybe really connecting to it without having, being conditioned to watching films the way I do now. Like at the time, mm-hmm. having like a lack of stories at all, exploring any part of like queer culture in any capacity or not yeah. even just necessarily queer culture, but even just like street culture and, and trying to live on your own and like. The things that these characters are going through. It's all like really, there aren't a ton of those stories. Yeah, a lot that's being shown in this film, I think, is probably like revolutionary for 1991. And obviously there's still Mm -hmm. a lot, a long way to go now. But it's like I can look at something like this and kind of like pick it apart because it's just... There's, I just found that there was a lot lacking. I was just going to say that what you said about conditioning ourselves... And the the stories that we're conditioned to relate to now, I think what we demand from our filmmaking and our stories, especially in the auteur world, is we need to feel like these characters Mm. are fighting and that they're real and that we understand even parts Mm -hmm. of them. And I think that when we watch films that are, are not focusing on those elements retroactively, when we're watching them, you know, 20 years later, 30 years later, whatever it's hard for us to see past the style mm-hmm. because we're already fighting to connect. And if we're fighting to connect and we have to push through the style, it's very easy to get lost. Mm. And I will say it was revolutionary. You're right. It was. And we should give it kudos Absolutely. for that. But again, what did I say? Paris is burning had come out a year before. And in that film we were exposed. It was Oscar nominated. We were exposed to a lot heavier truths in that film than we were in this. So let's not, uh, Let's not give it too much credentials for being revolutionary because <laughs> those those themes were being tackled by women and queer people prior yeah. to that, you know, not just him. It's just in terms of like connecting the characters. I agree that I think Rivers, River Phoenix's character of Mikey, like I didn't really care too much about him going to like Rome, which kind of seemed out of nowhere <laughs> and like trying to find his family because he didn't seem to really like want to do it that much. But I, I, I personally thought, Scott uh, Keanu's character of Scott was really interesting mm-hmm. um, because he like, you know, the big, I guess like quote unquote reveal at the end of the movie is that, you know, he gets his, uh, he gets his inheritance from his dad who was the mayor of Portland and then Bob Pigeon, who is like sort of like the, the, uh, the father of the street children in Portland. He comes up to him like expecting, you know, some sort of recognition. And Scott says like, I don't know you, blah, blah, blah. I still loved you. 
and like he kind of comes out as like being like a tourist in like the culture mm-hmm. or like living there and just sort of but what I thought was interesting about that is that that's not really a reveal because he kind of acknowledges that right, from several beginning. times yeah. throughout the movie. Like basically, I mean, from, from the, the scene that I thought was really yeah. cool where like from the go, he kind of says it like where he's on the, 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 uh, the magazines, like he kind of talks about that in that little monologue, which I thought was cool. He says it even earlier when Bob talks to him about like, what do you want to do? He's like, I'm going to be out of this in like a, in a year. Like I turned 21. I'm out yeah. of here. What did you guys, what, what did you all think about that? I think the reason why we gravitated towards Scott's story arc is because the nuance, the mm. idea of nuance in a straight man who has the world at his fingertips, a straight white man, a rich straight mm-hmm. white man mm-hmm. who has the world at his fingertips is choosing to reject that on this crusade, this idea, this fantasy of living a life to experience yeah. it. Mm-hmm. And we see that throughout the film. Him acknowledging the temporary nature that this is a farce. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This is a joke. This is a an adventure. And for everyone else, this is yes. real. And the nuance of that could have been really interesting if it was kept a little closer to the character mm-hmm. and it wasn't constantly being spoken about. Mm. Because then we would have been able to experience the the deceit of that bonfire scene. Yeah. Or mm. when he falls in love with that woman. Or mm-hmm. when he turns his back on this man he called a father. Wow. Mm-hmm. But it's already there at the very beginning. Yeah. yeah. Uh, let's talk about that fire, that that campfire scene. People love, like, basically anything I've read about the movie, everyone talks about the campfire scene as being, like, the scene from the film. Yeah. Um, boom. What were your thoughts on that one? I honestly... Did you have any? <laughs> <laughs> it was one of the major parts of the film that like I, I personally connected with and I thought was really well done. It was very vulnerable. Um, and again, I thought it grounded the characters. It was the only time that I personally felt for Keanu's character, Scott. And I know catcher made a comment about rivers performance and I'm sure you have more to say about it. I really loved his performance in that scene. I thought it was good. He was like very, inward very vulnerable very like you know hesitant but also unapologetic in a way and i i appreciated it and yeah he wrote it yes river phoenix is the one who wrote it yeah yeah he's the one who brought that to to gus van sant and said we need you know we need to we need to ground mikey we need to we need to we need to ground this character Mm -hmm. and we need to show them the difference between these realities and I, i think that you hit the nail on the head there also very interesting that that happens midway through the movie. Yeah. Right. Like I think a lot of films that would be the climax of the film. Yeah. Right. right. And, and I think it worked in that way, but I can also see how maybe that comes off as like just more of an unfocused type story because what seems to be the big like moment of their relationship mm-hmm. as like best friends or whatever they were, um, you know, it, it kind of comes to a peak there and the rest of it's sort of downhill for, for Mikey and Scott. Yeah. When we think about the the moments in the film, it feels like a a road trip film, but it's really not. Yeah. What what Gus Van Sant ends up doing is telling us where they are instead of showing us where they are. He right. tells us that they've moved. He tells us where they're going. And then we believe that journey has happened and he plunks us into those spaces without the actual journey, which is the most interesting part. He's, he doesn't really show that. He places them in a sedentary spot and he, he gives us a little bit of information and then on to the next spot we go. So we're constantly moving. And I call these films sequential films 
where it's like the tissue that binds the scenes and the moments together is lacking. Mm -hmm. And that's the Mm -hmm. part of the film that I typically enjoy the most. So it's like, Mm -hmm. boom, 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 boom. And you end up in Rome and you're like, how, how did we get here? Why yeah. are we here? Yeah, I, I, I actually rewound because I, I was confused. I was like, wait a minute, hold on. <laughs> How did they get there again? And what's the, what do we get from that, right? What, what, what does Mike's journey give us? Nothing, but that they would do the. Yeah, Scott gets this. It, that ends up being Scott's story, mm-hmm. right? That's like the crux of Scott, like falling in love or whatever. But Mikey, he goes to seek his mom, turns out she left, and then I think that's kind dead. of it. She's or she's dead. Yeah, she died. That was my understanding. I want to like how like unsatisfying it is because kind of to what Joey was saying before about like needing certain things from a script or from a film. I kind of like that this just doesn't really feed into like your personal needs and desires and mm-hmm. gives you yeah, nothing. But, you know... So yes, like straight up, that's something I do like about this film. Was it done in the best way? Maybe not. But, mm. you know, I kind of like that he doesn't find his mom. Um, well, I, I personally yeah. don't like that he doesn't find his mom, but. <laughs> <laughs> As a film, right? Yeah. yeah. It seems I like this movie more than the other people on, on this episode. But I want to say uh, I, I really liked Bob's. William Reichert's character of Bob Pigeon yeah. again he was like the dad of the performance is great uh, yeah his performance is awesome he is like I think if you're not connecting with the Shakespearean stuff you're not going to like him because he is like the most Shakespearean of all of them mm-hmm. but I thought his his moments are really great his soliloquies and and his yeah his committed I mean even his costume design is cool like he as much you know no one is really dressed Shakespearean but they clearly dressed up Bob to look more like like a king aspect that's kind of the vibe i got from his costume like his overcoat and all that sort of stuff um were there any other like characters whether it's bob or or that you any of you connected to i like the i like the interaction with the brother i think that that Mm. was a big Mm -hmm. revelation for for the character and Mm -hmm. you know as an audience member when you're watching these types of films i like that you have to do some work i like that you have Mm -hmm. to be engaged and you have to listen to each line and i think gus gus is a really um, big proponent for for making the audience work and pay attention and find those moments. Um, yeah. And I like how we were swept on a story that the brother was feeding us. And then just like that, it was dropped. It was evaporated into dust. And mm-hmm. in its stead, we were left with an even more devastating story. And I, I really liked that moment. I liked that character. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, in terms of like the Bob character, just quickly to touch on that, I think the thing with this, thing about the Shakespearean aspect and the reason why I think Bob manages to like make that work the most is because like it feels like that's like their it's like a playful world Mm. that they have as this family you know there's a lot about a lot of the themes of this movie is like family I think um and he sort of creates this elevated world for them you know and they all sort of exist and there's very playful and so the idea of having the Shakespearean language be used sort of makes it feel like it's their own world that they've made together. It's this family that they've made together. They have their own way of speaking to each other. Mm-hmm. And so the way that they call that back at the end when he sort of turns his back on Bob, um, but that he goes into that mode again and there is that sort of Shakespeare, like play-like 
there's a spotlight on his face, or maybe it's like a red light on his face, and, and it's more stylized. Like, I really enjoy that stuff, and I think, maybe not enjoy that stuff, but I enjoy that idea. Mm-hmm. And I think, like, that's why I resonated the most with Bob. Like, he's the character that's sort of the least likable, mm-hmm. but at least he, fe- like, you understand his place within the story. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you understand, like, what his motivations are. And, mm-hmm. and I think, uh, yeah, for me, he was... He's the one that I connected to the most. And then Mikey is the one I just so desperately wanted to like more mm-hmm. and mm. couldn't find a way into ever. Like it just was so difficult for me to do that. I wonder if the need for you three <laughs> and I guess other um, me to an extent too of wanting to connect with Mikey is because it's River Phoenix. I like. I have no, I have no connection to him okay. at all. Yeah. Cause there's such like a, there's such like a legend and lore around river Phoenix. Yeah. And I've never been one who's been like, I, I mean, obviously it, <laughs> this is sound very harsh. I've never been one who's been like, Oh, like if only river Phoenix was still making yeah. movies like that has never once crossed my mind, which does do either you have that sort of relationship with them? And is that why you sort of wished a little more from the character? I love, I, I do love River Phoenix. Okay. I, I think that in, in, there were moments in the film where I was, um, I was just watching him and mm-hmm. I think it, it, it definitely plays into this romanticized idea of him dying young mm-hmm. and, and his past and the fact that he is, uh, you know, a stunning creature in its most classical sense of, <laughs> of our understanding. Yeah. It allows us to see this, this, this boy on screen who is, willing to be vulnerable or trying to be vulnerable or struggling. And he plays things internally and I enjoy that. I don't think it's often mm-hmm. um, easy to see, but mm-hmm. I definitely saw in, in that character and in certain moments where he's crouching on the floor, asking for money while mm-hmm. a man's oh, taking yeah. a shit, you know, mm-hmm. like moments like that where he brushes his hair out of his face mm-hmm. because he's getting a little sweaty and hot, like moments where I see him, fall into the reality of the character mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. I enjoy. And there was a cinematographer who actually worked on this film that that was moved by his transformation during the process. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I think that there's something more there. I'm not sure if it's extremely visible in this film, but I definitely, right. I definitely am a River Phoenix fan. Nice. Boom, what about you? I think this might have been the first thing I've seen River Phoenix in, to be honest. I haven't seen... Mm-hmm. I haven't seen Stand By Me or or anything else that he's in, but I understand kind of the the legacy that that he's left behind, and I understand that he's very loved. And I thought, mm. performance wise, he was quite good. I could ar- like I could argue that he provided the best performance in this film. I agreed. Know that. Like I know Catcher said that he really liked Keanu's performance. I did not. It's there were literal parts of this film that it seemed like he was just reading off of like cue cards at like Agreed. behind the camera. I didn't say it was he was the best performance. Fair, it's fair. just his, his best performance. Is I it's shocking like, for him. Yeah. Yeah, we're trained yeah. to think of Keanu a certain way, right? I do enjoy Keanu. I think he's provided a lot of entertainment in my life. I think he's a cool dude. Um <laughs> <laughs> in general, but I I thought his performance was quite quite flat, and that compared to River Phoenix's performance, I would say, what mm. like I felt River Phoenix's performance was quite exceptional for the most mm. part, and so yeah, and I know I've been like saying all the things that I don't like about this film, but there's 
There were a lot of things that we'll I get did love. Of- yeah. <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But I will say this as well. I think I think Brad Pitt's another another actor who who kind of fell victim to this. I think when someone is so beautiful mm-hmm. in this kind of very classical white sense, mm-hmm. um, we can very easily um, brush their talent under the rug or see them as as just that face. I think for me, Keanu is someone who is so stoic that sometimes it works in their favor. Yeah. And mm-hmm. sometimes I actually think that in the matrix, their kind of stoic lost nature really, really works. Mm-hmm. So I think that it's they have their place. For that. Yeah. Yeah. It works. I think for river Phoenix, you, you see the difference in their performance because of the difference of the character as well, which we should also acknowledge with, with, with Mike, it's mm-hmm. a character who is living a reality and struggling to get through each moment. 100%. You feel that internal kind of tug of war. And with Keanu, mm-hmm. it does feel stilted. It does feel kind of farcical because it is. It, yeah. It's a character who's kind of going through the motions and saying, y'all, I don't need this shit. Like, I'm 100%. about to be rich as fuck. Like, you feel that in the performances. So maybe it's also me reacting to the characters as opposed mm-hmm. to just the performances. And I'll I'll definitely right. admit that. Yeah. Um, shout out Brad Pitt. I agree. I think <laughs> Brad Pitt is like somehow one of the most underrated actors ever. Agreed. He is so good in almost everything he does, but for True. like it's he he he's one of the few people where it's like he is amazing. Everyone loves him, but I still don't think he's credited for how good of an actor yeah. he is. Like he's in some of my favorite movies ever, and he is like amazing in everything. They it, it's, it's a very complicated, so overhyped and like overappreciated that people, just like Joey was saying, like don't look past the kind of like the beauty and like allure of the person. But in a lot yeah. of cases, like even it with- happens to women all the time. Oh yes. Yeah. Oh, a hundred percent in both directions, yeah. because you have these like female mm-hmm. actress, like I think Jennifer Lawrence is not a good actress, but you have these mm-hmm. women who are just like put on pedestals because they're, they're attractive. And then you have like, then there's, Ian, you can cut all of this, but like Emmy Rossum, I think is like no, an amazing actress who doesn't get cast in <laughs> anything and you know, you don't see her anywhere, but yeah, sorry. You're just talking about Phantom of the Opera. I know. <laughs> you know me, you know me. <laughs> uh, she is great in that. Um, were there any, anything else about my own private Idaho before we jump to our little categories? Um, I had a question for Joey actually. Because there, so I learned while doing my research for this film that the scene where they're in the Chinese restaurant and they kind of are doing that documentary style, those documentary style monologues uh, Mm -hmm. with the two sex workers. I learned that those were actually like real sex workers that Gus Van Sant found. Um, Mm. And Mm -hmm. in watching your, in watching Flood, obviously there are, we touch on sex work there. And... I was just wondering how you how you felt uh, my own private Idaho kind of dealt with those themes. I personally mm-hmm. thought there were there were some hits and some misses, and obviously, like sex work is such a broad thing, and there's a lot of nuance there. But yeah, so yeah, I think th- I think that's a fantastic question. Thanks for for touching on that. I think sex work and uh, queerness or femme expression is intrinsically linked. I think when you think about 
queer people, you have to understand that we are sexual beings, but we're valued in the shadows and Mm -hmm. people will sometimes spend a lot of money to touch us. And being touched is being touched. And that's a really Mm. powerful thing. Sometimes for the first time you're experiencing touch for a dollar. Um, I love the idea that these themes are discussed. I think that as much as we need positive representation, again, whatever the fuck that means, we do need to understand where people are living now and why they're living like that and what Mm -hmm. that means. My favorite part of the entire film was those two monologues. That was my favorite part of the Mm. entire film. Um, That's the way I typically work. Mm -hmm. I have conversations with people and that's why I really respect Gus Van Sant for for that moment and for their process Mm -hmm. because I think similar to to my process, they're really inspired by what they see, Mm -hmm. what they experience and what they live. And they're willing to share those stories with the people who should be telling them. Uh, they were haunting to hear, but I love the way they were delivered. Mm-hmm. Because if if you've seen House, which I hope you guys check out, any of the listeners, there's a moment where you see effeminate black queer kids, essentially, talking about uncomfortable sexual situations. But they're doing it with laughter. They're mm-hmm. doing it and they're, you know, they're brushing it off their shoulder because that's a part of life. Not everything is going to be linked to trauma in its traditional sense. Mm -hmm. So when you're seeing these two young boys talk about sex work, as much as it's traumatic, it's also a point of discussion about their reality. And it doesn't always need to be linked with, oh, that's that's really too bad. It can be a discussion over ramen noodles or chow mein. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And that's what I really responded to in that scene. A hundred percent. I think that was so well said. And One other thing I will shout out is the like sex scenes and the way that they were shot in Tableau. I thought that was really cool because in a sense, it like elevates sex as art. And I was really nervous coming up Mm -hmm. to the Mm -hmm. like heterosex scene between Keanu and Carmela, Carmela, um, that they would just show it straight up. And I'm happy that, that they didn't, that they, that both the, like the threesome between the three males and and the mm-hmm. heterosex scene were, were both done in Tableau. We're I thought that was very interesting. I enjoyed it. Um, yep. I, I will also add about the sex scenes, the sex work scenes. I mean, I think that there was a little bit of play and camp with some of the subject matter with the cleaning of the house and, you know, mm. these older yes. effeminate rich men being like, do this because this is my kink. I think that there's a bit of tongue in cheek there that he's trying yeah. to allude to and it does happen totally people have those kinks and it happens all the time like i said i was a really big fan of gus van zandt when i was younger and like just always loved hearing him speak um and i was just brushing up on like an interview he had done recently and just his love and appreciation for humor and um and and how you can tell stories with humor Mm-hmm. He's like he doesn't feel he's like a traditional humorist, but he he does appreciate what humor can do in in regard to like telling stories mm-hmm. and how they can help that process of conveying meaning and message. Um, so I I, I yeah I, I, you definitely see that in those scenes, and I I think it's like it's nice it's there it's a nice sort of like change up to what you've been seeing. I think it brings a little bit of levity. Uh, to a serious situation without demeaning the situation. I don't think Mm -hmm. I do have one question. Um, So like I said, I I got into the vibe of like the Gus Van Zandt vibe, sort of like halfway through the movie and then really like sort of settled into it and was really enjoying it. And I just want like, he is a director who enjoys experimentation. He is someone that likes to play with the form a bit. He, um, 
he's a, a was a friend of Burroughs and um sort of really the like sort of cut up style was something that was really inspiring for him during the making of this movie. Mm. And I wonder for you guys I feel like that's so the idea of making the character narcoleptic mm. sort of allows that style to happen more easily because you don't have to show the ride to the next city because he's passed out and then he just wakes up there. And that's part of his, I think part of the style he's going for. Um, so, so I'm just wondering if that, how, how that resonates with you in terms of maybe it doesn't make for the best first viewing, but do you think it's sort of something that's interesting that's going on? Do you like it at all? So I, know I got we sort the, of touched on it. I got the narcolepsy thing as it, the film opens up with like the narcolepsy definition highlighted like out of a dictionary. (laughs) And then, so I kind of think that it's actually a way since this is based off Shakespeare, I think it's a way of him to close scenes and acts as a shake, as a play would like cutting to black or curtains because the way it opens up, it would be, you know, that would be a curtain opening in a play. And like you said, when he passes out, we wake up in a new location for the most part. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I actually think it was his little, like, this is the end of this scene. That's like, great insight. You know, act one, scene three, whatever, this is over, yeah. and this moves it on. So that's actually how I saw that. And originally, great, it was a cut to black. Originally, I, he had it cut to black, and then the screenings of the test screenings were like, this isn't working. I don't even think he enjoyed it. And when he was falling asleep, it would cut to black for extended periods of time, and then they added in those, you know, sweeping shots of landscapes that his cinematographer, mm. you know, shot on their own. Oh, interesting. Okay. And then last question, who, the end, the ending scene. Yeah. Mm. Do you have the first two people that swing by him and sort of pickpocket him and take his bag? I'm not interested in those people, but I'm interested if any of you had a gut reaction with regards to who that was, if it was anybody at all. And and what you think the ending? It because for me, I left. I had an idea of who it was. I just don't know what it's telling me. And I think it's a matter of sitting down and watching the movie another time or two times and really like getting into it it's, again because I was so off it at the beginning. Um, but I'm just wondering if you guys had any opinions on that because just for my own sake. Um. So I Boom. when Maybe. I saw that I wanted it to be Scott initially, and I was like, I hope it is. And then I did some research and apparently there's like actual um, like first draft scripts where it is in fact Scott that picks him up off the road. So it can be assumed that it was him. But then I kind of thought about it and I almost like I was like, okay, as much as I do wish like that it was Scott and he like came around and there's good in this world and like people aren't terrible. Like we were saying before, like Scott's character is quite interesting because it kind of just shows this like white affluent male and how he can just like enter and disrupt these spaces and leave them at his will. And so him kind Mm -hmm. of, and I think that's very truthful and raw. And so him going back at the end and kind of like redeeming himself, I was like, I don't want to make amends with Scott. Like I want him to just, I just want to hate him forever. And, but I don't know. So that's, that was my thing. This is like the morbid film watcher in me. I had kind of assumed it was just like some random person who was going to take advantage of him. And the lesson there was we can't abandon people who are in, who are already like inherently in dire situations. Yes, I mean, yeah. you know, queer people 
trans people, sex workers today are obviously not in any, oftentimes not in very safe situations, especially if they're alone in, you know, the middle of nowhere, not in a probably major like liberal city. Mm -hmm. And so for me, it was like he got abandoned by, you know, his, his best friend and he, and I think it just sort of says, you know, you, we can't abandon people who need support. Mm -hmm. Um, but again, I think that could be the, just me sort of always watching movies sort of <laughs> for a sort of more depressing angles or something like that. But that's kind of how I read it. No, I think that's strong though. Like, I think that's a strong thing to pull out of it. For, for me, I, I didn't think that it was Scott after watch, I rewound it and I, I watched it a second time. And I said, there's an intentional decision here to really pull out. Right. And to give right. us distance. Mm -hmm. yeah. And it's to separate the yeah. viewer from the subject that we have now grown accustomed to. And we're becoming, um, we're moving away from them. And we have to understand by them moving physically or their body being moved physically that their life continues. I don't necessarily think that they were, you know, being put in a car and taken advantage of. Although mm -hmm. yeah. there's a discussion about his sleeping body being sexualized earlier on in the film that I right. think was interesting. And I thought about that immediately. But what I think it yeah. really touches on, you know, almost undeniably, is this idea that at the end of the film, we are left with Scott in an affluent situation with money, with security, with a heteronormative situation in terms of marriage or relationship. But for Mikey, he's still on the road. Mm -hmm. You know, his mm -hmm. life continues. This adventure that we are brought on, almost like to say Scott's Scott, Scott's portion of this adventure, Scott's adventure within Mike's adventure was worth watching. But now that it's just a sex worker trying to make a dollar and survive, we no longer care. We're no longer mm. in it. Now we're removed mm. because this life will continue and the parts of it that made it special are out. Mm. Well, that was my own private Idaho. So let's get to our uh, end of discussion uh, what categories here. So let's, let's start off with our criterion moment. Again, this is uh, a scene or sequence that we think is the reason why it has been featured within the criterion collection. So uh, Joey, let's start with you. For, for me, the, the moment I was drawn to and the moment that I felt the most um, vulnerable as a viewer, where I felt exposed viewing it was actually mm. when I saw those two young boys talk about, you know, their first sexual encounter as a sex worker or being taken mm -hmm. advantage of as a sex worker. That's when I felt like I was watching something that made me feel um, uncomfortable in an interesting way. And mm -hmm. I feel like that rooting into reality, that undeniable rooting is what grounded a lot of the abstraction and a lot of the poetic nature in which Gus Van Sant shot this film. So for me, that's my moment. Boom. What's yours? I'm going to take the easy way out and I'm going to pick the campfire scene. And mm -hmm. I, I've already spoken about it. So I won't waste any tape talking about it again. But for me, like that was that was a good connecting moment for me. And I mm -hmm. think it kind of like saved me in terms of the way I was viewing uh, and experiencing the film. So mm -hmm. nice catcher. Um, it's hard. I really just don't feel like I genuinely like connected to mm -hmm. the movie. So it's hard like for me to say one that really moved me. Um, but I think the sequence when Ke uh, Keanu's character, Scott, comes uh, down and speaks with uh, Mikey about how 
he's sort of doing his own thing. And he's going to be like going off with this girl that he met mm. at the farm. Mm-hmm. And just the way it's so clear how much pain Mike Mikey is in, how lost he is, and that he can just sort of like swing in, drop some cash off, and then mm-hmm. walk out is just, you know, that's who this character has been. In a weird way, the whole time, mm-hmm. and you—it's not never feels shocking, and I think the fact that it doesn't feel shocking is so gross. Like not gross, but it's just that it hurts so much more. That's a good one. Um, you know what I mean? It's just like everyone, everyone is falling into these places, and it just sucks to watch. My moment was is—I talked about this earlier a little bit too—is is the end scene where Scott, um, we see Mikey. He's living on the streets again with Bob. And Scott comes up in a limo. He comes in his suit. He goes in the restaurant, and then Bob like talks to him and that whole sequence. So that whole thing I really liked because I think it shows a lot of patience and writing with Gus's Gus's writing. Because I think a lot of films in that moment there would have been a big scene between Scott and Mikey, but all Mikey says, like Mikey kind of knows, you know, Mikey kind of says, "Oh, well, maybe he's a human or something like that," but. He kind of knows nothing's going to happen and he doesn't follow Scott into the restaurant. He doesn't cause a scene in there being like, you know, you left me like what happened? We were best friends, which a lot of movies would do. Yeah. And the way they manage that scene, I, I I thought it was like, I just can't figure out how to quit you or whatever. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Exactly. A hundred percent. Like that is what I think a less controlled movie would do. And I think yeah. the way, Obviously, the the Bob and Keanu stuff works really well, and how you know the the red light on Keanu, all that sort of stuff, works. But I think the real moment is how Scott and Mikey actually don't have an interaction there, because to me that that stood out. Yeah, a hundred percent. So let's go to our satellite picks again. This is where we choose a movie or another piece of content that you would pair along with my own private Idaho. Let's go reverse order, uh, and I'm going in reverse order because I think mine might get picked. Um, <laughs> uh, sp- spe- speaking of Shakespeare modernized adaptations that take place in the Pacific Northwest, uh, I'm going to go with 10 things I hate about you. I love, love, love nice. that movie. I've seen that movie mm-hmm. about a hundred, hundred so times. Um, I, that's based off of Shakespeare's taming of the shrew also happens to star a, you know, beautiful young leading man, Heath Ledger who died uh, early who I particularly was connected to a lot. So there are parallels between Heath Ledger and River, River Phoenix in that way. And it's just like such a good adaptation. Like that movie is so good. It's endlessly yeah. quotable. One of my favorite movies. Um, yeah. 10 things I hate about you. I watched it on Valentine's day and it's just like in terms of like early two thousand. like last week on the show, I was talking about how early two thousands may have been the worst of times in terms of just like growing up. But I think that 10 Things I Hate About You has aged quite well. Really well. Oh, you, you yeah. guys yeah. are making me want to rewatch. I haven't watched it in a long time. Julia Stiles, <laughs> you, you should. Me? I need to I revisit. And then, like, because re- I hadn't rewatched it in years. So, like, rewatching it as like a sensitive, like, millennial or whatever, just like a new appreciation for the, the English teacher <laughs> is right. It's right. quite fun. It's quite fun. So. Definitely highly recommend. I quote that movie maybe every day. I say something from that movie. 
I don't um, know. I, I love it so much. It's, it's I love that for you, boo. I love that you do that. <laughs> that just added layers to your existence for me. That just added so many yeah. layers. <laughs> I see you now. Yes, as you should. I going to say it was Julia Stiles um, dancing on a table to Notorious B.I.G. Like, yes, role prep for Save the Last Dance or what? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it was prep. Uh, catcher, what was your satellite pick? Well, for, I was going to do just Gus Van Zandt and I thought suggesting like the Death Series oh, Elephant. So multiple, multiple choices. Multiple okay. choices. Yeah. Okay. But now you guys have got me all like Shakespearean and I'm like, and then you mentioned Julia Stiles and I was like, just go watch O. Oh. Yeah. I haven't seen that in a while, but that movie's crazy. I don't know. It. It's been, it's been a while. So yeah. I'm, I'm not sure how problematic it might be in context now because it's been some time. But O is like a modern telling of Othello. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Mackay Pfeiffer. Mackay Pfeiffer. Mackay, yeah. Who gives an My honestly boyfriend. impeccable <laughs> performance uh, in that movie, I think. And uh, what's his name? Is it Josh Hartnett? Josh yeah, Hartnett. Yeah, he's Iago. Or he's the oh, Iago Josh character. Josh Hartnett. Playing just sleazy, <laughs> sleazy white college student, you know? Um yeah. I don't know. I will go back and watch it. It may mm. be problematic now, but uh, it's modern Shakespeare that's not taking the subject lightly. You know, it's gonna be. It's gonna take some dark turns, but I remember it being very good. So I know we spoke about it last week, and I know we will likely be doing this on the show. But I have to choose Last Black Man uh, mm. in San Francisco because mm. I'd say like it mirrors my own private Idaho. In a few ways, like the feeling of Mm. displacement and searching for like where you belong. It's arty. It's ambitious. Um, Also Shakespearean. It's not like in a lot of ways. Yeah, no, a hundred percent. And yeah, it's not a queer story, but it does challenge toxic masculinity in a Mm. way, you know, because it depicts in the way that it depicts like the two male leads. And yeah, so... We are just going to change the title of the show to Last Black Man in San Francisco Fan Club. And Joey, after of what, like seeing your shorts, I actually do think you would really, really yes. love I'm sure I would. Uh, 100%. Last I'm sure Black I would. Man. Yeah, yeah. I, I agree. I like, let's just uh, keep on the comments going. I actually, I'm, I'm a big A24 fanboy. And I think stylistically, like when I, your shorts were totally, when I thought I'm like, oh yeah, this is like, this is like in the canon of that sort 100%. of like modern when bike A24 riding. Oh girl, you're giving me all you're giving me all the compliments I need right now. <laughs> yeah, like that's all. Like Listen, you, these you, are you know not- what? Let's let's send this to A24. Pique their interest <laughs> yes. because that it, that would make my life honestly. I yeah, really like the, love the what bike they do. ride, the bike ride scene, the the dance rehearsal. Yeah. Uh, I mean, just like the opening stuff for Flood. Like it all worked in that like canon of sort of new auteur cinema for me. So, uh, uh, yeah. Yes. You deserve this is the not, This is not fluff. This yeah. is not like you're on the show. Mm-hmm. If you if I had seen those shorts and not known who you were, they'd still be exceptional. Oh, like, yeah. I, thank I, you so I'm much. I'm just I lucky agree. that I... Yeah. We had to play that Jackbox game at my place, and yes. then I managed yeah. to <laughs> get you no, on the I, show. Like I I'm appreciate that. I really, you know, I appreciate that. Those are labors of love, and I'm glad that they that they connect. My yeah, my my moment, my satellite moment. I again, I've I've been saying it 
We said at the very beginning, Ian, you stole my moment, but I'm going to say it anyways. Paris is burning. Mm -hmm. I think the reason why I think it's important to watch is because it came out the year before. It's a documentary, so naturally it's going to have a smaller audience group. But this film defined queer culture for years. It still does for years still now. by exposing racialized queer folks in an unapologetic way. It's not a sob mm -hmm. story. It is not you feeling guilty for watching these people. It is a beautiful story full of agency and life and laughter and humor mm -hmm. and culture and movement and color and sound. It is where you get to see a beautiful representation of queer people in their element seeking their moment. And that's why I think it's just a joy to watch. It's like 82 minutes. It's heartbreaking. It's exhilarating. And you'll learn a lot from watching it. So check it out, especially if you watch this film. Awesome. So uh, we we read our email earlier. Thanks again, Mel, for sending that over. Mel. If you want to shoot us an email again, you can shoot us one at synodspod at gmail.com. Uh, before we wrap today, Catcher, where are you taking us next week? Well, I had an idea, and then everyone started talking about Paris is Burning, and now I'm super desperate to watch that. Oh, girl, you so can't be was, doing that without me. No, 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 but this, this was the thing. So this was the thing. So then right now, as you were describing it, I was like, no, we'll just have Joey back on the pod. We'll okay. watch Paris is Burning. So I will keep that off, and I will stick with my original choice, which is I'm Woman in the Dunes. Hmm. I've not one heard of, of this one. One of 1960s great international art house sensations, Women in the Dunes was for many the grand unveiling of the surreal, idiosyncratic world of Hiroshi Teshigara. Hmm. Uh, Eji Okadata plays an amateur... Uh, <laughs> oh my God, what is this word? <laughs> Etymologist who has Etymologist. left Tokyo... Yeah, who has left Tokyo to study an unclassified species of beetle found in a vast desert. When he misses his bus back to civilization, he is persuaded to spend the night with a young widow in her hut at the bottom of a sand dune. What results is one of cinema's most unnerving and palpably erotic battle of the sexes, Ooh. as oh, well no. as a nightmarish depiction of everyday life as a Sisyphus-style struggle, an achievement that garnered the director a Best Director nomination. So, okay. nice. Women in the Dunes, 1964. We're going back to Japan. Going mm. back to Japan. Excellent. Yeah. Nice. I have not heard of, I haven't heard of this movie, but uh, Me neither, I, but I read the description and I was like if that's not a movie I don't want to watch then there's yeah. nothing nothing else is, so <laughs> let's do that. <laughs> <laughs> well, folks, thanks everyone for listening. Joey, again, where where yes. can people watch and keep up with all your work? Um keep up with your hopefully soon coming feature film, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. I mean, I would, I would say follow, follow me at Joseph takes photos. I'm not a social media queen, but I do post updates and stills and announcements on that Instagram page. Look out for my feature film, the very controversial, but a drop the mic moment tribe. And that film title is also a long discussion to be had, but keep a lookout <laughs> for works that will boost Canadian cinema into a bold presentation. And I think that that's the direction we're moving. I'm excited by new voices that I'm mm -hmm. surrounded boy by queer femme, people of color, some white straight men sprinkled in there too. Don't get me wrong, but we are looking <laughs> at a new dawn of English Canadian cinema. And I think that that is on a foundation of bold 
choices that will upset some people, but are coming from informed and interesting places. Yeah, awesome. let them be upset. Well, I'm, I'm looking forward to see uh, your feature at Sundance or TIFF or wherever it ends up premiering and in, in hopefully yes. in the near future. And distributed by Same A24. Here. And distributed by A24, <laughs> correct. Right. So, uh, Did you I know hear A24. that, A24? You hear that? <laughs> well, thanks everyone for hanging out. Boomcatcher. Yeah. Uh, well, I'll talk to you next week. Joey, it was awesome to meet you again. Yeah, it was fun. And, uh, this was a lot this of fun. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, we'll, we'll get yes. you back on for Paris is Burning. So uh, we'll make sure yeah, you I will be quoting sure. the entire time you are not ready. <laughs> <laughs> oh, awesome. I'm ready. Well, thanks, everyone. And we'll, uh, we'll talk to y'all next week. Bye. Ciao. Bye. Bye.